Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about Guy Ritchie's live-action adaptation of Aladdin. Now, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that Adam and I both enjoyed Guy Ritchie's King Arthur Legend of the Sword. We were in the minority, but like we went to bat for that movie. Um, we also quite enjoyed uh, Man from Uncle. So we're not like Richie haters, you know, um, some of his stuff I like more than others, but even the films of his that like, haven't been that popular, like King Arthur, we were like, that has merit. But now we get to Aladdin, which is the latest in Disney's string of live action adaptation of their animated library. And, uh, now Adam's here to tell you why he loved it. Just loved it to death. It's just Adam. the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> God, this movie just made me angry. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't. It, I had a hard time pinpointing exactly why. Like, it's not like it's not a mess. It's not a disaster. It's not garbage. Like, it's competently put together. It it technically tells a beginning, middle, and end story. Um, and I love Aladdin. Like, Aladdin was for me when I was a kid. That was my Disney movie. Like, that was the one I watched over and over and over again. I had an Aladdin sword. I had a Jafar staff. Uh, I was obsessed with the soundtrack. I would always put it on. I would perform shows. Uh, and it, like this movie just – there is no reason for this movie to exist basically. And, we're gonna, and I have no – And we're going to get to that because there there are some people that would argue it does have a reason to exist because it's not like the other Disney live action adaptations because now you're about to listen to two white dudes talk about a movie that has a very strong cultural aspect to it that is non-white. Yes. Aren't you in for a treat? <laughs> yes. Which is not lost on me, but like just the larger view of – and I should qualify. Like I love the original animated Aladdin, but I am under no um, – you know, I, I, I'm not mistaken that it's I, I, I don't believe that it's this, you know, perfect, great movie. I don't hold it up as, uh, you know, one of the great pieces of cinema of all time. I'm just saying it was my favorite movie when I was a kid. So going into this, I wasn't like, boy, it better be like that original or I'm going to be mad. Uh, I'm just saying that I had an affinity for this story and these songs and this live action adaptation just didn't. There's no spark to it. There's no reason for it to exist, again, beyond uh, you know, the, the, the casting, the correct casting, uh, I should say, of the live-action uh, remake is good. Like That is a good thing. It's a good thing to put those faces up there. And my fiancé were talking about it after the movie, and she was like, don't you think that's a reason for it to exist, that you know, um, you know, young uh, people of Middle Eastern descent or, or kids can look up on the screen and see themselves? And I said, yes, absolutely. But just like the structure of this movie it's in in like none of the musical numbers hold a candle to any of the musical numbers in the animated movie they lack any sense of spark or originality they're just kind of going through the motions um i don't know i just there's no and and so as a point of comparison to to compare them to the other live action remakes i would look at something like cinderella which i think is great kenneth branagh cinderella um that movie i think is really a really terrific adaptation because it just takes the nugget of the idea of the original cinderella some of the similar story beats but its entire reason for existing is that it is a movie about um the value of having courage and being kind being a a kind person in the face of evil in the face of 
of nastiness in the face of rudeness and persevering through that kindness um, and having the courage to do so. That it is very strong thematically, and it feels like it it makes sense as a story being told um, about something. It is a movie about something. Pete's Dragon, similar, similarly, is a very compassionate story about kind of outsiders or people um, who may be considered strange or odd uh, and coming to, uh, to accept and love those people. Um, I think Aladdin falls more in line with the live action Beauty and the Beast, which is basically, here's the anime movie you like only in live action. The end. Well, I recently watched, I thought Lindsay Ellis, who does these great YouTube essays, um, had a really great video about Beauty and the Beast and watching it. I was reminded a lot about Aladdin, which is that Disney, it's not that they're necessarily new and trying to like mine their animated library for films. It's just, they've just been doing it a lot more recently, but more than that, what Beauty and the Beast and certainly Aladdin do is it just throws more stuff in but without understanding why the beats of the original movie work in the way that they do. And the movies almost seem constructed in such a way as to respond to YouTube videos and internet comments. Like that's like, so for a movie like Aladdin, you have, you know, some of the complaints are valid. Like why does uh, Jasmine have to marry a prince? Why can't she become the Sultan? I'm like, sure. It's a fairy. T- uh, sure. I get it. That's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, a question I never had is, why don't they just look up a Babwa on a map? Like that to me is like the most internet-y comment. Like he says he's Prince Ali of Ababwa. Well, why doesn't anyone just look for a Babwa? So now in the live action Aladdin, you have to have an entire fucking scene where Jasmine's <laughs> like, I can't find a Babwa on a map. And Aladdin's like, help me out, genie. Put a Babwa on a map. And I'm just, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> it's like, oh, there it is. And then just moves on. Yeah. Like that's it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's like you know, and you, and you know, it's like it's not enough for Jafar to be like he's evil because he wants power. It's like that's not good enough. No, Jafar needs to have an inferiority complex and can't feel like he's second best and stretching that whole fucking thing out. And look, he has a backstory where he was a thief. And I'm like, I don't fucking care. Do not give a shit at all. <laughs> it's the original animated Aladdin is 90 minutes. The new live action one is two hours, eight minutes. And that's 38. It's 38 minutes of extra stuff. Nobody really asked for all that much. And the only reason it's there is to kind of give you something different than the animated version, but in a way that isn't all that cohesive, even the stuff that's like well-intentioned, like let's, you know, let's try to, you know, be a little more feminist and like give Javin some more power. So you get this song, uh, this new Jasmine song that's dropped in fucking randomly at like the second act climax. Like it's briefly sung earlier in the film. And then there's the reprise of it at the most, at the weirdest time. Like it's just dropped in. It's like, Oh, we got to finish this song. And I that's, also, can we talk about that song for a second? Yes, we can talk about that song. It doesn't, it doesn't. And I love Pasek and Paul who wrote the lyrics to that song. Uh, they wrote Dear Evan Hansen. They wrote a lot of the songs on the La La Land soundtrack. Um, they also wrote Greatest Showman. Uh, I think they are tremendous songwriters. They've won Oscars. They've won Tonys. Um, I don't think this is a very good song. I think not only does it not sound like any of the other songs in the movie, so it doesn't fit musically with Alan Menken's other songs. Uh, it 
it, to me, it just felt like equal rights and pop star. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, let's break it down to talk about, you know, being a woman and being strong. And I do, I, I will say, I do like the changes they made to Jasmine in this movie. I, I, I thought that was fine. Um, and uh, I think it was on the Big Picture podcast. Someone pointed out that uh, when you look at like the Disney princesses, um, you know, Beauty and the Beast is about Belle. Cinderella is about Cinderella. But Aladdin is about Aladdin. Jasmine was never really a protagonist of Aladdin, so she didn't have much to do. And I liked the idea of her, you know, um, being the successor to the throne, but she can't take the throne. She has to marry someone to take the throne. Uh, I liked that idea that she's capable of doing it. But it, it just felt so shoehorned in, this this speechless song. Um, right. Well, just, I mean, like... But even her whole character is just kind of like it's it's basically dropping markers like this is feminist Jasmine. You asked for it and you get it, but is it, is it organically woven into the story? Did they really give it the care and attention to show that they take it seriously or is it just lip service? And I would say it's lip service. Yeah. I mean, there are shades of like Marjorie Tyrell of her, like wanting to go down to the streets and visit and be among the commoners and stuff. Um, but it doesn't really – I'm trying to remember how the movie ended. <laughs> um, the movie ends where really she gets to be – salt. She, she is now Sultan. And oh, so, thanks for the spoiler, Jack. It made over $100 million and it's a children's movie. <laughs> what do you people freaking want from me? Because I'm going to go into one spoiler later. So sorry. Um, we will put up a spoiler warning for the big spoiler later. But yeah. um, It's not even that big of a spoiler. It's just the funniest thing to me. But anyway. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's just – I, I get like yeah they may, and so instead of her father who you know saying I'm the Sultan this won't be a law she's like I'm the Sultan this won't be a law sure you know I don't hate it but it's you know I don't know it, it doesn't really live organically with the rest of the story again a lot of this movie is just like let's do Aladdin but you know make it longer and also address you know YouTube videos that's that's yeah. kind of this movie. It's kind of baffling, and I want to know – like I'm very curious about the development history of this because the two credited screenwriters are John August who wrote Big Fish and is one of the kind of uh, foremost script doctors in Hollywood. Um, he's a big structure guy. Uh, he runs the Script Notes podcast with Craig Mason. That's a really good listen. Um, and Guy Ritchie co-wrote it uh who you know his filmography very hit or miss and and i personally have a very weird relationship with guy Ritchie and that i i'm not a huge fan of lock stock and snatch uh i actively dislike his sherlock holmes movies but then i like adore man from uncle and had a lot of fun with king arthur um so i was kind of excited for this to kind of see what was going on i didn't see his uh you know middle career movies that were forgettable like swept away and rock and roll and stuff um are those necessary? Do I need to see those? No one should ever see Swept Away. It's one of the worst <laughs> reviewed movies. Rock and Rolla is kind of this weird kind of, like it feels like Richie trying to get back in his groove of like Snatch Snatch and, and Lockstock, but not really getting there. Like it's like Yeah. It's like you can't go home again. So we'll see. I mean, he has another film coming out later this year, I think, called The Gentleman, which is kind of back in that vein. Yeah, which people said they liked the footage they saw at CinemaCon, so we'll see. But which to me, it's very telling that in post production on this giant blockbuster, Guy Ritchie was already off making another movie, um, and that's what it felt like to me. It felt like Guy Ritchie was hired to essentially be a babysitter, babysit this script, don't rock the boat, just shoot it competently. You get like two Guy Ritchie scenes, and that's it. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I. 
Well, I mean, look, I think on the surface, Guy Ritchie seems like kind of a clever hire. It's like, oh, you know, he's done this story about street toughs in Britain. What if like street toughs, you know, like, a, you know, again, Aladdin is a street level character, um, you know, but Guy Ritchie has also shown he can do blockbuster stuff. It seems like a sensible hire, but the problem is, is that it's very much in, like we said, it's very much like Beauty and the Beast, where it's just like, hey, you liked the animated film? What if it were longer and added a bunch of shit you didn't want? Like, I never really, like, I get it. Like, it's a common thing in Disney movies. Like, what happened to the mom? I don't need to know what happened to Jasmine's mom. <laughs> that <laughs> never kept me up nights. Like, oh, man, what if she came from another kingdom and was killed, but never explained how that happened? And also Jafar wants to now go to war with that kingdom. Like, what the hell? Like, why? <laughs> why so much? Yeah. Uh, well, it reminded me of the, the very bad new song in Beauty and the Beast with the flashback of like, we don't really need this, this story. Of, yeah, I don't like, need to know how like the uh, plague yeah, killed his Bell's parents. Mom died from the fucking plague. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I was saying is that like Guy Ritchie gets like two scenes where he does Guy Ritchie, which the I think is the one is it the one jump ahead or is it the song right after that? Kind of one jump ahead. Kind of that where it's like sped up when my fiance turned to me. She was like, does this seem off? And I was like, it's just Guy Ritchie just doing his thing. Just keep watching. It's fine. Um, where it's kind of the, the like they shot it in. They shot it with them singing slowed down and then they sped it up to normal speed. So it just plays a little strangely and then in speechless there's a little bit of uh, his kind of nuttiness um but other than that like it's completely authorless like it's like he's not here um which i think maybe was the point yeah uh, that's was, kind of that's that's kind of what irked me about the whole thing is that it it just felt very much like disney executives and the head of the company decided they wanted to make a disney love action remake because the original movie is beloved and it will make money and it will sell park tickets and it will do X, Y, and Z in terms of bottom line. And they said, we're making it. We don't have a reason to make it, but we're making it. You're going to direct it. Um, you know, you can cast, you know, appropriate actors or whatever, but just make it similar. Well, okay, great. Yeah. We have all the songs. Good. Okay. Yeah. Put it out. It has nothing to say. People will walk in. It's mindless and it will make a billion dollars and it's fine. And that just really irked me because it feels like a waste. And I look at something like Pete's Dragon, which didn't do as well. And I'm like, this is a really interesting like twist on the Pete's Dragon story and has something to say. And it, it was just very frustrating. Like it, it's one of the first times I felt very, and I understand that like, you know, everyone's afraid like Disney owns everything. And I think competition is great. I am not super happy about Disney buying Fox and everything, but I've always been kind of like, you know, it's whatever, like people love Disney movies and they want to go to Disney world. So it's fine. This is one of the, like, it, it was just very striking to me watching this, that I was watching a product and not necessarily a piece of art. Yeah. And look, we're not naive. We're not like, oh, all movies are treated as sacrosanct by the studio executives yeah, no. who jet, who care so much about art they just want to create help the artists realize their vision no obviously they're in it for money but my issue with aladdin is there doesn't need to be this false dichotomy where it's like it can either be you know mindless nostalgia sludge for the masses to lap up and you know give us money or it can be art but if it's art it's not going to do well and i'm like that's just not true like you can, and it's not saying like Aladdin has to be, you know, like a, a deeply complex character study, but honestly, 
you know, to go back to your earlier comment of like, yes, it's great to see like actors like Mina Masood and Naomi Scott and like, you know, leading a film and like, you know, you know, kids of Middle Eastern descent can see themselves on screen. That's really cool. They deserve a better movie. They deserve their own Aladdin. Like they deserve, like we have the 92 Aladdin, you know, the animated film, which, you know, and obviously everyone can have that film. It's not, you know, we don't own it. Um, But if this is for a new generation, give something that's worthy of them. Like give something that they'll want to share with their kids. And this isn't it. This is, this is forgettable sludge. This is nothing. This is a nothing film. And it, and it treats the audience with disrespect because it's just like, it's IP and this intellectual property will, you know, it'll, we can create a film. We can create a product out of it. You'll go see it. You'll give us your money. And this film will be forgotten the moment you step out of the theater. And it's just, it's a bummer. It's a real bummer because nothing in it precludes this movie from being good. There's no rule that says a live action Aladdin film has to be a cynical cash grab. This one is. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I do want to say, I think Mina Masood is fantastic as Aladdin. I think Naomi Scott is really good as Jasmine. Uh, And I liked her a lot in the Power Rangers movie, which I liked more than uh, most other people. Um, I think they're they're very good actors. I was not crazy about the Jafar performance. I was <laughs> not like crazy was about Jafar. He, yeah, that it's like what if Jafar was a psychopath? Well, not no. just a psychopath, but it's like okay, Jafar. Not only are you a psychopath, but you need to like play it low key, like a low simmer. And I'm like, you do realize he's like theatrically dressed, like like he's kind of like he's two steps away from just being at Disney world, like a, someone who works in the park. So why are you like the, what's fun about the animated Jafar is that he is dramatic. You know, it is, he's kind of an over the top character and like, just but he's also cocksure and confident. And this yeah. Jafar is like constantly like, uh, I, I don't know. He feels like an MRA. Yeah. Uh, well, he does. Dude. Yeah, I agree. I mean, because like they leaned into that, like, no, this Jafar is an inferiority complex. And it's like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, actually as an incel, this is very in- insulting to me. <laughs> Jasmine, why will you not fuck me? <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's not that the sexual politics of it aren't, aren't really that explicit, but it just, it's that kind of like low simmer, like you said, that low simmering anger where I think you need a little more theatricality in something like this. I I mean, in a movie where Will Smith is rapping as Genie, you don't have to play everything super grounded. No, you don't. Now I will say, we've been trashing on this film for a little bit. I expected (laughs) Will Smith as Genie to not work at all. And I was actually fairly charmed by it. Do you mean Will Smith as Hitch? It is Hitch, but at least that's, you know what? At least that's a fucking take. At least that's something new and different. And I like the fact that they were able to be like, you know what? There is only one Robin Williams. So what if we try to channel the manic energy of the character, but put Will Smith's stamp on it? And I think that is respectful to Robin Williams' legacy, and it is, it lets Will Smith do what he does well. And I think the fact that they can coexist and not like, oh, this is an embarrassment or... I don't know. It it worked. The genie stuff worked far better than I expected it to. I were I I do think the blue CGI genie is the stuff of nightmares. But <laughs> yes. the, I was gonna say I really hated that. I don't think they got the eyes right at all. So no. I was always just distracted. I didn't want to like say anything, but in my review because I couldn't say it for sure. But I'll ask your opinion. 
Is that an entirely CGI Will Smith? Did they like put yeah. blue? Okay. So they didn't like Will Smith does not sit in the chair to do blue makeup is my, that was my no, assessment. It's, it's one of those motion capture performances. Um, kind of like how they put, how they uh, like de-age Robert Downey Jr. in like civil war. So I'm sure, although in this case, since the genius like fly around and stuff, I'm sure he was just on like a mocap stage, but it's a, again, it was the eyes that really got to me cause they didn't get the eyes right. And, on a lot of those uh, de-age, you know, digitally de-aged performances, like the entire face is CG and they get the eyes right, but they did not get the eyes right. Anyway, um, see Gemini Man this October. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. He did it again. You're right. He did it again. It's completely CG Will Smith in that, in that movie. Um, yeah, I was not a fan of the Blue Genie Will Smith. I did like it when he was uh, in his human form. Um I liked kind of the queer eye aspect of it where he's kind of he's just kind of making him over. Yeah, um, like it's, it's not it's not a grand ambition like Hitch with magic, no. but it it's at least different and its own thing. Yeah, it's a take. Um, but again, Robin Williams is irreplaceable. So it's, it's 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 an impossible task. And I think there are very rare instances where that works, uh, like Heath Ledger Joker versus Jack Nicholson Joker, where it's like, holy shit, they did it. Really? Um, you think Jack Nicholson Joker is good? <laughs> I mean, it, at that that was the the talk of the time. Was That's like, true. Oh, it was a very it was a very defined Joker from Jack Nicholson it, playing Jack Nicholson. Yes, it was a, it was a take. I will say All right. the, of like no one can replace Jack Nicholson as the iconic Joker sure. on the live action screen, and it was like, oh, actually Heath Ledger is better, and now he's the iconic Joker. Um, I'm saying that like maybe there's a small possibility someone could have made the I still think my wife is right that Keegan Michael Key would have made a really good genie. Yeah, he would have been fun. Um I just like my feelings toward this entire film it just didn't need to exist. I don't see I don't see a way out here. I don't see a way that this movie um is like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I Glad mean we the way you'd have to do it is you'd have to actually make some bolder choices, but the problem is is that those choices are at odds with what Disney wants from the movie and what the Disney wants is you know, the regurgitated animated version, but with live with, you know, live action. That's it. That's all they want. They do not want they don't care if like you make an interesting Aladdin movie. They just want a safe Aladdin movie, an Aladdin yeah. movie that is inoffensive and gets people to show up on opening weekend and then they don't care. And that's what they got. That's I mean, by its by the metric of Disney, Aladdin is a hit. <laughs> yeah, you know, Aladdin is exactly what they want by my metric. I'm still stuck on Hakeem the head guard. <laughs> and this is this is the spoiler I was talking about earlier. So stop listening. The second act climax of Aladdin revolves around Jafar and the Sultan arguing over the loyalties of Hakeem <laughs> the head guard, a minor character who we don't really know that well. But they're arguing over who he should arrest. <laughs> this goes on for a while. Mind you, Jafar has a genie who will Mind do what you, he Jafar wants. Mind you, Jafar only has a But then, at the same time, like it's a weird thing to go with. Like, so in the in the animated version, he's like, "I want to be the Sultan," and like the clouds change, and like the world is different. Like him being Sultan recreate, like it, it carries with it actual things happening. Yeah, 
And in this one, he's like, I want to be the Sultan. And he gets new clothes and he's like, I'm the Sultan. And like, <laughs> what is Hakeem supposed to think? Oh, well, now your clothes are slightly different. I have to do what you, as my wife pointed out, I have to do what you say, man in different clothes. <laughs> like, you're not the Sultan just because you said so. <laughs> He took the hat, man. He He took took the hat. He took his hat. Yeah, like that's the whole thing. Like there are certain things that in a streamlined, animated, fairy tale movie, you just accept and you trust that the audience will go along with it. And it's this weird counterintuitive thing where the more you attempt to explain a world, the more explanations it requires. If If you trust your audience's imagination... 95% of your audience is going to meet you halfway. Art requires people to meet it halfway. The people who aren't going to meet you halfway are dumbasses like CinemaSins who like, oh, I have to like nitpick every little aspect of a movie because that's my brand. Like there's no actual, yes, you can be like, well, how did, like, how does his Sultan power work? And how does this work? Like, and at the end of the day, it's like, this is the visual language of cinema and the language of storytelling and what we accept and what we know allows us to go on this journey. And the more you slow things down to be like, well, who will arrest things? I know let's have Hakeem. Let's argue over who Hakeem, the head guard should arrest. That is just that to me for a film that wasn't like, it wasn't exactly skating along that stopped the movie dead in its tracks. Yeah. I was like, why is this scene here? How did well, and they it comes? It comes right before speechless also stops the movie. Dead yes. In its tracks. There's no reason for that. to happen. The momentum of the movie goes out the window. It's, it's an utter mess. And I, it kind of baffles me because again, I think you, you, you had it right. I think guy Ritchie just checked out and it's not like anyone really, cared all that much because again the point of the live action aladdin is to you know be a live action aladdin it's not to be good it's not to be memorable it's not to you know it's maybe to quote unquote improve on things that were quote unquote unclear in the animated film but for the most part it's just like and again i i I know i'm ragging on this movie a lot i didn't hate it like because it couldn't even conjure that kind of strong emotion from me. <laughs> like I didn't do anything. So like, it didn't outrage me. It's just like, yeah, this is pretty bad and forgettable. And it has some moments that were surprisingly decent, but you know, again, you know, Jeannie was surprisingly decent. I agree with you. I liked Mana Masood's performance, Naomi Scott's performance. Um, but those are just kind of smaller things. The whole film doesn't really, add up to to, the, to something worthwhile on its own. Even the songs. I mean, the songs are great in the original, but the arrangements here were just, like, boring. They were not great arrangements. It felt like they're like, well, we don't want to do singing, but we're going to do, like, maybe we can do, like, rap singing, kind of. Well, there is some, like, the One Jump Ahead is a song, and they sing, and A Whole New World is a song, and they sing, but, like, the tempo and the Yeah, pace the tempo was very tempo weird. It's, I don't know, it's... It's like they were afraid to make it feel like a recreation of the original, but also didn't want to stray too far from the original. Yeah, it's trying to split the difference on a musical. Let me know how that works out. Whereas I feel like even in the live-action Beauty and the Beast, which I didn't love, uh, I was still like, oh yeah, I like this song. Like, this yeah, is good. Yeah, like the song he sings when he when Belle leaves him, you know, and he yeah. goes to the tower. That's a nice song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My parents are dead of the plague. <laughs> that one, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> um... 
Yeah, it was just a bummer. Like, it just bummed me out. Well, and it makes me wonder about, like, the future of these live-action adaptations, because they're going to keep coming. And... Well, and I, I feel like a hypocrite, because I was talking to our friends that we saw it with, and I was, like, uh, talking about what I didn't like about it, and how it just felt like a waste, and it's just, like, why not just watch the anime movie? And I was like, all that being said, I'm going to watch the shit out of the Jungle Book. Or, not Jungle Book, The Lion King. I'm not even, like, now, like, I'm a little more... more... Because I don't have a strong like I Lion King was part of my childhood, but I don't have the strong feelings I do for it like I do for like Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, but like Lion King is kind of weird. <laughs> I'm already kind of looking at that one askance. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> to <laughs> like, me, I'm it sure... has a reason to exist in that. Oh, what if the animals were photoreal? It's different enough. I'll say that. And <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, John Favreau really you know, from a technical level blew my mind with jungle book. Like the fact yeah. that that movie is avatar level kind of VFX. Um, but yeah, Lion King is jungle book or Mowgli legend of the jungle. You know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because I think <laughs> you're the first person who has ever been glad that Mowgli legend of the jungle. I'm glad you brought that up because something that I think is also important to note, the difference between beauty and the beast and Aladdin is and uh, Cinderella and Jungle Book is that Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, the way that those are being made, those are very straight adaptation of relatively recent movies. Like those movies are only about 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like distinctive stamps on them. Whereas Lion, whereas Jungle Book and Cinderella are more about like new adaptations of old public domain stories. Like those films were so much in the past that I don't think they had those strong feelings attached to them that I think we could kind of give them more leeway and Disney in turn kind of gave them more freedom. Like it's not yeah. like you, you, you can't offend those diehard Jungle Book fans like those don't exist. Well, and same with Pete's Dragon, too. Yeah. And that's a weird movie. It's a weird movie, but it's great. Yeah. Well, the, I'm talking about the original. Like, that's a weird kind oh, of... Oh, yeah. That is a weird... Yeah, it is a weird cult film. So, yeah, it's this weird thing where, like, the more popular the film is, the more they have to, like, keep it keep it to what people know. Yeah, don't rock the boat. Except Lion King is going to be rocking the boat a little bit because it doesn't have Be Prepared, which is one of its best songs. Oh, it doesn't? I didn't know that. It doesn't this have Be Prepared. to me? Yeah. I, when I found that out, I was super pissed. <laughs> It's a really good song. And I get, look, yeah, I get it. The And the animated version does have some Nazi imagery in it. <laughs> the hyenas are Nazis. But that's kind of what makes it awesome. That's kind of yeah. like, yeah, just, uh, Scar is an authoritarian leader. Let's get, let's dig into that. I will. I do want to say, though, while we're on the subject of this, uh, there is some controversy over the issue of credits and do these live action remakes, should the screenplay be credited, be giving a story by credit to the people who wrote the screenplays of the original movies. And I say, yes, especially after seeing Aladdin, like why? Because it is my understanding that the um, creators, animators of the uh, Disney films that they're based on are seeing absolutely no money from these. When in, in many instances, those animators were laying the foundation for what these movies are doing down to like specific shots and shot composition and imagery, which I feel warrants some kind of compensation or at least a thank you. Right. I, I honestly don't know how it works. Like, I mean, well, I, I know how it works because I saw people fighting about it on Twitter and then, um, uh, someone, uh, connected to the beauty of the beast movie, uh, with knowledge of it, um, was very much like, Nope, that's not a, like they don't get anything. And this is why um, 
Is it because uh, Disney owns the product and like that's the end? Yeah, of it? basically, Disney can do whatever they want. But this person connected with Beauty and the Beast was basically saying like they don't deserve it. Um, you know, there's uh. no reason to give it to them because they didn't do any work on this new one. Which I guess I can see, but I, I no, that's know. fucking bullshit. That's fucking bullshit. The first writer, uh, like, you know who 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 keeps who gets money from all the Fast and Furious movies? Like the people who made the first one, no matter how different than eighth one is. Yeah, like that doesn't that doesn't if you adapt something or make sequels or like change it, like the orig- the originators get credit. They get money from that. Yeah. So like, don't be like, oh, it's so different. We couldn't possibly, you know acknowledge like that's bullshit that's just and this could be wrong this could be i mean this is my understanding that this could have changed but i mean you look at the credits the screenplay credits there is no story by to the people who wrote these original movies which i feel like or at least a based on the film by and then you credit the writers and that's how it should be it based it's an adaptation if you were to submit this movie it would not be under original screenplay yeah. I mean, I look at The Lion King and you look at Rafiki holding Simba up and that shot that goes around him. That's directly from the animated movie and it wouldn't exist as a piece of iconic imagery if not for Ron Musker and uh, – or, or is it John Musker and Ron Clements or Ron Musker and John Clements? I can't remember the names. Let's Very get bad. Drew on here and, and check ourselves. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Or maybe they they weren't Lion King. Gosh. Yeah, we'll uh, we got to bring Duron. It's uh, Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. My bad. Um, Musker and Clements did Aladdin and uh, Hunchback. Of Notre Dame. But your point stands that the you know it's not that they're just cribbing story points; they're cribbing direct shots. Yeah, and they're doing it at you know Disney is like you need this shot and this shot and this shot because exactly this is what the people want, and it sucks to the people that actually did the work on the original and just having their work plagiarized because, hey, we're all part of the Disney family. Yeah, it's all part of the same team. It'd be like if I was like, well, Matt ranked the Marvel movies, but I'm going to do my own ranking on Collider.com and uh, you know, just not really – just pretend like his didn't exist. So yeah. it, That's a very – bad comparison just ignore we, we're, we're playing at we're playing at the same level i mean if he does that there are millions of dollars on the line <laughs> millions of disney bucks disney my disney bucks <laughs> uh, yeah it's just and, and this is you know this comes back to you know why it's not a great idea to have disney have so much power over the the marketplace like yeah they can get away with shit like this and they can get away with uh, like making a lackluster Aladdin because no one's forcing them to up their game. Whereas – and this is the comparison I always made. We would not have Logan or Deadpool if not for the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Those movies forced 20th Century Fox to up their game to figure out how to do the Marvel movies differently than Disney was doing them. And now that they're the same team, Disney's like, well, you don't have to do it differently. Let's just stick with our formula and rope it all together. Uh, and you know, that's obviously a broad generalization, but that that's, that's what competition brings out. Yeah. Things have to change and transform and you move the ball forward when, yeah. when one comp, when you have a monopoly and, uh, you know, Disney does not have a monopoly yet, <laughs> but when you have fewer companies, there's less incentive for any of them to change or to do better. Like competition is, is a good thing. So yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. So I don't know. Just Aladdin just bums me out, man. <laughs> it just like I don't hate it. I just it bums me out. Yeah, I will say I'm somewhat encouraged by uh, so Mulan. Uh, Not it a musical. Like 
not a music. Oh yeah, not a musical. But they're they. What I'm encouraged by is that they are changing a lot of things. It doesn't sound like they're just translating the animated movie to uh, live action. Sure. The villain of the new Mulan is a powerful witch played by Gong Li instead of uh, Shan Yu, um, who's the villain in the animated movie. So at least there's some risk being taken there, or some like like I much prefer adaptations where you just take the nugget of the idea and then make it your own as opposed to um, just kind of translating like Captain America Civil War the movie is not Captain America Civil War the comics arc uh, and it's a better movie for it like they they worked with what they had and they changed what they wanted to yeah no I, I would say you know and the thing is is that when you do these adaptations the original is still there like that's the thing like you just remade Aladdin kept it pretty faithful except for adding more stuff. I still have my animated Aladdin. Like you didn't come and take that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like with Mulan, like just, I mean, that's the thing. If you're going to change it, change it. And if people don't like it, big deal. The original is still there. But again, from yeah. Disney's perspective, if they don't like it, then it's wasted money and it doesn't help the brand and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, for so. sure. It's, it's a bummer. Um, but I'm glad we got to talk about Hakeem, the head guard. <laughs> Here's to uh, the Cruella origin story. That no one asked for. (laughs) By the way, there's another Maleficent movie coming this year. Yes. I did not enjoy Maleficent. (laughs) Neither did I. I I don't know who's uh, looking forward to that one. Angelina Jolie. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Well, Disney waited for years. The offer was on her table to come back. So she was like, all right, now I'll do it. Um, so yeah, that's it about Aladdin. I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking. I'll be interested to sort of revisit this conversation a bit before we see Lion King. Like is Lion King more of the same or is it its own thing? We'll have Drew on to get his inside info on uh, what's going on there because he did a, a really great extensive profile of Sean Bailey, who's the person at charge at Disney in charge of the these live action remakes. He's essentially think of it as like he's the Kevin Feige of the Disney live action remakes. So yes, so we will we will talk about that then. Indeed. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Um, because the movie was barely in theaters, I was very much looking forward to seeing a film called The Little Stranger uh, once it came on, uh, you know, some other platform. And I finally was able to catch it on. I think it was uh, it was HBO or Cinemax. Uh, uh, it came out last year, technically. Directed by Lenny Abramson, and it was uh, his first film after earning a Best Director nomination for Room. He also made Frank, uh, based on a Lucinda Coxon novel, uh, very gothic, very strange, starring Donald Gleason, Ruth Wilson, and Focus Features was like, yeah, no, we're going to dump it. Like, we're not going to put it in very many theaters, and uh, we're going to hold review embargoes until, like, way, way, way late. It only made $1.8 million. They released it over Labor Day weekend, the worst weekend of the year. And I don't understand why. Like, I saw the film. It's a prickly movie. It's a very strange movie. Uh, well, no, it's actually not very strange. It's very prickly. It's a very um, uh, kind of obtuse movie. Uh, it doesn't make you feel good. And you don't feel good while you're watching it. And you don't feel good when it's over. But uh, and it's, about, it's about the subject matter is what everyone loves. Class disparity. Yes, class disparity uh, with a little ghost story mixed in there. Um, but the ghost story is not like super duper explicit. So it's left to you to infer what you wish or what you may. Um, and I kind of liked it. I mean, it, it uh, as a story, it didn't ultimately come together in a way that I felt was like super satisfying. 
But craft-wise, I was really wowed by it. And I, I say this as someone who wasn't super wowed by Lenny's work on Room. Um, I mean, I thought it was fine, but I was like, a Best Director nomination? Really? Um, and I, I like Frank a lot. I think it's really fun and weird. But he never struck me as someone who was like, oh, this is a director to watch. And this movie, I was like, oh, this is a guy who knows exactly what he wants and knows how he's going to get it. Uh, and I thought the the shot design, the production design, the cinematography was all very impressive in this one. The performances, I thought Donald Gleason gave a really, really impressive performance because um, it's so subdued and under the surface. The entire movie is internal for his character, and it never explodes. Um, and that's really hard to do and to feel like he's kind of losing it um, without having these kind of like crazy uh, explicit breakdowns. Um, and I thought Ruth Wilson was also really terrific in it. Um, as I said, it's a prickly movie. It, it's not a movie that's going to give you a straightforward story or straightforward answers. It, it gives you a lot to chew on, um, a lot to think about. Um, but uh, I'm glad I saw it, and I wish more people had had the opportunity to see it. Um, but it's a strange one. What did you think about it when it came out? I It's not a film I really enjoyed because I feel like once you get it, there's really nothing left to do with it. Like, oh, yeah. it's about class disparity. I get yeah. it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like I, I agree with it. Um, and it's like class disparity and jealousy and like that's all well and good. And the craftsmanship of it is well and good. I just felt that there wasn't enough for me to chew on with it. Like even though nothing is really made explicit, I felt that the, the subtext is clear enough to be like, oh, OK, that's what it is. Um, and like, it's good. And I thought the film, it's one of those films, like, even though I didn't love it, I'm glad it exists. And I felt annoyed that focus features dumped it, even though I don't know, like, it's not like, Oh, if they release it on this weekend, it'd be a hit. That movie was never going to be a hit. That movie is not a like that movie feels like quite honestly, like something for the BBC, like the, that should have been like released on the BBC. Like it's like a UK audience was like, ah, I recognize that. I get that. And like it's for them, and to release it as like in America, in the summer at the end of summer, just feels like why not just release? Why not just sell this to Netflix at this point? Yeah, yeah, that was just, uh, and especially from Focus, who's usually pretty good with their films, like even films that aren't great, they still give them kind of a robust release. Um, but talking about getting it and feeling like the point is over, I was like, oh, like Mother. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's the Bible. I get it. Oh, it's the okay. Bible. Got it. <laughs> We're good. That's the that's the problem. But with that's, like, in, that's that's in the first ten minutes, and you're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. At least Little Stranger like slowly unfolds. Like you're not really sure what's going on, and then yeah. as it makes itself clear, you're like, oh, that's what you're doing. But you don't get it like right away. <laughs> yeah, and I never really knew what was going to happen next. Even when I got the subtext and the themes of it, it was kind of like, well, so where is this gonna go? Basically, yeah. So. So, yeah, I, you know, it's a film I encourage people to check out um, and I, I wish it had found a better, a bigger audience. But, you know, credit to, you know, Abrams and, you know, if you're going to use that post Oscar, you know, cred, make something like this, make something that's hard to make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, for me, uh, apparently this is just now going to be like what I saw on Criterion Channel recently. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> I want to. Yeah. Uh, I recently watched Fritz Lang's The Big Heat. Uh, which is a Columbia Noir, I believe, 1953. Um, the plot of it is uh, that there's uh, this detective 
uh, or there's this, this, he's investigating what appears to be a suicide and he looks into it and it looks like this suicide of another cop, um, is connected to this mob boss. And so the, the cop, Dave Banyan, who's played by Glenn Ford, uh, starts kind of investigating this mobster and the power that he holds and the more he investigates, the more his own uh, Dave Banyan's personal life unravels. And it's one of those films that's very bleak and very like, I mean, as good noir should be. Um, but it does some really interesting things with it. I mean, Fritz Lang is obviously, you know, a genius with M and, you know, Metropolis. And uh, I think he's excellent here as well. Uh, but the things that this film does, for example... Like it, it exists in a world where Banyan, who is on this kind of quest for justice uh, to enforce the law, is like has to pay huge personal sacrifices. Uh, whereas the people who have succeeded so far, are the people who go along to get along, and it's just kind of this very sad indictment of like, yeah, people don't really care what's right; they just want to live their lives, and if they're corrupt people, so be it. Um, and then the other really cool thing about it is that Gloria Graham uh, plays uh, Debbie Marsh, who's the mall of one of the gangsters uh, henchmen played by Lee Marvin. Uh, Gloria Graham, you probably know her best. She played Violet in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the, the girl who doesn't get Jimmy Stewart. Um, anyway, so she plays his mall. And what's interesting and what other critics have pointed out with the big heat is that it kind of inverts the femme fatale, whereas all the wit like usually the femme fatale, like when she come, you know, she's trouble for a man. And what this does is Dave Banyan, whenever he meets a woman, that woman is not going to have, she's not going to have a good time. <laughs> like not because of him, like he doesn't hurt them, but his sphere of influence causes her something bad to happen to her later down the road. And Gloria Graham, like, character Debbie, becomes this weird kind of inverse of that, where she kind of becomes the hero, but she can't be completely heroic because she sort of straddles this world, like, between the law-abiding world and the crime world. And it's really interesting where how the film positions her character. Um, my only really complaint about The Big Heat is I think the ending is a little pat and sort of safe, and it feels very like, well, the production code mandates it, so mm. that's what we have. But, like, it's not the end. Like, it's that weird sort of like, oh, and all is well again. And it's like, it has to be that, but not really on board with what the rest of the film is doing. Uh, but what the rest of the film is really kind of pretty terrific. So if you have Criterion Channel, watch The Big Heat. Nice. All right. Well, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.